For those in the sanctuary here, I invite you to grab a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, there's one in uh, the chairs in front of you. Turn to page 948, and uh, you'll find there Hebrews chapter 12, where we will be looking this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at the great race, and these verses are verses that more than likely many of you have heard before. Maybe you know them fairly well. Maybe they're Hebrews 12, chapter 1 is a great source of encouragement to you or has been in the past. And so we're just going to look at it this morning and see what God has for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. There are a few things that we want to uh, see. And the first thing is, I think the most important thing is really the, the kind of picture, the context to what is being painted here by the author, the great race. So imagine with me for a moment that you are a professional athlete for the Edmonton Oilers, because they arguably had the greatest player of all time for the most amount of years, Wayne Gretzky. And in Rogers Place, there is in the banners uh, at Rogers Place, Rogers Arena in Edmonton, Alberta, there is a banner number 99 in the rafters, and they color these these different banners so that you can see the different things that the teams of the past have earned and accomplished, some of them Stanley Cup, some of them Western Conference Finals, whatever that is. But you can see all of the times where the teams or the players from the past have made it to the end, where they've made it to the final, where they've made it to the prize, and the prize in the NHL is the Stanley Cup, and in any other race there's always a prize. And you can find those banners and you can see what players have done. Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest players ever play, has a banner at Rogers Place, Rogers Arena, number 99, up in the, in the rafters. Can you imagine playing in that arena and seeing that? And I know if you ever got to see him play, I didn't get to see much of him play, but if you ever did, you can imagine what it would be like to then play in that arena and think of that person that person who has gone before you and who has played this sport and this game and, and gone and won the race and got to the end. And there's other players as well. You go to any other arena and you'll see other players that have done the same thing or similar things. They've won the prize, right? They maybe weren't as great as Wayne Gretzky, but they won the prize. They made it to the end. Can you imagine what it would be like to play in front of those people for a moment? Maybe if you have a piano recital, can you imagine what it would be like to play that piano recital in front of Johann Sebastian Bach, right? You wouldn't want to make a mistake at all if that was the case, right? Or, this won't be scary for me, what if the next round of golf, Tiger Woods came up to you and said, hey, could I come along with you? I'd be like, no way. You do not want to see me play golf. And we'll, get, we'll, we'll have some fun on Saturday. Our team on Saturday will have fun. That will be it, <laughs> I think. We'll just have, that's, when I was asked to play on the team, I was like, can we just have fun? Then, okay, good. I can't imagine what it would be like to play a, game, a round of golf, so I would be just embarrassed, right? But, but even though I'm not very good at golf, my adrenaline would go up. My concentration, at least I would try to concentrate. I don't know. It, my composure might not go up so much, but... I would certainly be focused on what I was doing if I had somebody of, of Tiger Woods' presence in 
at the golf course, or Johann Sebastian Bach, or if you play hockey, Wayne Gretzky, can you imagine him sitting there watching, right? For the preacher, sometimes it's like somebody in the, in the crowd who has like a master's degree or a doctorate, and, you're, and you know that before you get on the, up to the pulpit, you're like, okay, I can't say anything stupid now, right? You got to be careful. I remember as a kid when we used to, I used to play soccer, and I remember the difference that it made, and I don't know if you can relate to this at all, I hope so. The difference that it made when you play uh, a game or you do a sport or you're in some kind of race or competition and the difference it makes to have your mother and father or your grandparents there on the sidelines cheering for you. And I don't know about you, but when you start to hear them cheering for you, you start to try a little bit harder and you focus a little bit more. I don't know if that's ever been the case for you. I've tried and I've done that before. I'm just gonna, I can remember the feeling on the soccer field of that time. You focus more. The presence of noticeable witnesses is motivating. It's a motivating thing to have people that have gone before you and done those things and to, to be there and to see you doing it. It motivates your activity, whatever that may be. I'm going to read for us Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and you're hearing this morning, and then we will walk through what I think the author is trying to share with these believers. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, thinking back to chapter 11 and all of that that we learned about in the past two weeks. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to talk about this momentarily, but there is a misconception about this chapter, and it is that we feel like the saints of old in Hebrews 11 are, it's as if they are in the stands and they are cheering us on as we run the race of faith. And that is not entirely true, I don't think, and that's not really what Hebrews chapter 12 is getting at when he shares here. But I want to walk through this metaphor, this athletic metaphor that the author of Hebrew uses, and it's common in his time, and Paul uses it many times in his epistles. You read about those, and you can read his stuff, and he talks about the race that he ran, right? He wanted to encouraged the author of Hebrews wanted to encourage the people here because they were persevering or they were going to face persecution and he wanted them to persevere in the middle of life's difficult circumstances. So the event is a race. The contestants in the race is, as you read in Hebrews chapter 12, it's the author himself because he says, let us, right? He's there. He's right there with you. He says, let us. So it's the author of Hebrews It's the people that he's writing to, and then it's us by way of our faith, by our mutual faith in Christ. We are the contestants in the race. And there's a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Many men and women who are great spiritual athletes from the past. And we got to read about some of them in chapter 11. There are many, many, many more that have done remarkable things and and trusted in God and placed their faith in Him and made it to the end of the race that God had for them. And they're an encouragement to us. But the witnesses in chapter 11, 
They're not live witnesses of an event, that being the race of our lives. They're witnesses by the fact that their past lives bear witness to the monumental preserving faith. That's really the whole point. Faith like Abraham and Moses and Abel, all the characters that we read in 11. They're not there cheering us on. They're there as witnesses to us of people that have gone before us. And I think you're going to see that as we read for, through these two verses this morning. It's like those banners in, this, in the arenas. The number 99, Wayne Gretzky. They aren't there cheering for you, but they're there to be a witness and a motivation to you of people that have walked faithfully with Jesus to the great prize. It is achievable, is what they're saying to you. It's been done before. You can do it. Whatever it is that God has in your path right now, it's achievable. It can be done. They've done it. And so you get great encouragement, you get great energy just in seeing that there's people that have gone before you. And so this morning we have to see, first of all, that we need to run the race of faith. In verse 1, we need to run the race of faith. What is, let me ask you, what is your purpose in life? What is your, what has God called you to do? It's a question that each of us needs to answer. Whether you've placed your faith in Christ or not, what is your purpose? Why are you alive? Is it to attain a certain amount of money? To attain a certain amount of wealth? Is it to get to a certain position of power and authority uh, where you work or in your life? Is it to enjoy life, enjoy the pleasures of life, enjoy entertainment in life? Is that the purpose? Is that what you have been called to? Those things that I listed are things that the world pursues. Power, wealth, enjoyment. But from the moment that you are saved, and to, from the moment that you place your faith in Christ, you are in a race. And you're in a race until the moment that you die. And that's how the Christian ought to see their life. Life is a race. All right? Life is a race. And it really changes how you live your life when you understand that. When you understand what you've been called to. That you've been called to have enduring faith to the end. To run the race. To run in obedience to wherever God has called you, to whatever workplace He's called you, to whatever family He's called you to live in, to whatever country He's called you to live in, to walk in obedience, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and to glorify God. That's the greatest thing that we could ever be called to. Not the things that the world would encourage us to pursue. To have enduring faith to the end. God has called us to run the race of faith and to endure to the end, to place our trust in Him and to follow Him. And as you run that race, consider those that have gone before you. And so the first thing we need to see then in, the in verse 1 is that we remember the faithful. It says a great cloud of witnesses. There's a large number of faithful people that have walked and run, sorry, run the race of faith. And they're more than just spectators. They're an encouragement to us. They give us meaning. They interpret for you and I the things that we go through the challenges that we face, right? the distresses that we face, the heartache that we face. The saints of old interpret for us what it means because they're examples to us. 
is we remember that Hebrews was written to a persecuted people. They're there to spur us on. Remember what Moses went through and how he persevered. Remember what Noah went through and how he persevered. Remember the thousands of people between the time of Jesus and now who have been murdered for their faith. Remember what they've gone through. You can do it. You can persevere. You can press on. So remember the faithful. There's a great cloud of witnesses before us. And because of that, what does he say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Second thing we see is that we need to, if we run this race, and as we run this race, looking to those that have gone before us, they are examples to us that we need to strip off hindrances in our race. They're examples to us of that. And so we're called to strip them off, all hindrances. No athlete runs with weights intentionally unless he's training, right? Otherwise, there's no weights. Nobody runs with hindrances. You take as much of the clothing off, you take as much of those things away, and you try to get rid of that extra noise if it's going to get in the way of the race that you're running. The point is, if you're wearing anything that is slowing you down, take it off. It could be a friendship, it could be an association, it could be an event, it could be a place that you go, it could be a habit that you have, it could be entertainment, it could be a pleasure that you enjoy. It doesn't have to be a sinful thing. When he says, let us lay aside every weight, we'll get to the, point, to the part where he talks about those things that are sin, but he's not talking about sinful things. He's talking about things that are, that are good or that are maybe neutral. But what is he saying? He's saying maybe those things, they drag you down. Maybe they keep you from pursuing Jesus. And so the question that you and I need to ask as we read this, as he says, let us lay aside, is how do I know when something is hindering my pursuit of Jesus? That really becomes the question that we need to answer, I think. How do I know if something's hindering my pursuit of Jesus? Because we don't want to fall into the wrong thinking of, okay, I have to be at the church when the doors are open every single time and be at every single event and give X amount of dollars or go into missions and do missions. God has called each of us to run a different race. And if we fall into that way of thinking, what is very easy for us then to think is that those merits begin to be what is our salvation. Those merits begin to be the things that we want and strive for more than Jesus, right? If God's going to be happy with me, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to serve, I'm going to be a part of everything because God will be more pleased with me. And it gets in the way of me pursuing Jesus because I'm just doing it because it makes me feel good, it makes me feel right with God. And we can all of a sudden fall into this self-righteousness, which Jeff is going to share about later tonight if you want to be a part of that theology forum this evening. The question is, how do I know if something is hindering my pursuit of Jesus? What if God took it away for a bit? How would you respond? You know, what would you 
do if God took some of those things away? Not those sinful things, just those things that are good, like, you know, golf or you name it, entertainment. The movie theater just got back after being gone for how many months in Charlottetown, right? How does this particular weight, while being a good thing, affect your ability to serve God with your resources and with your time? Each of us have been given time and resources. How do those good things affect the way that I spend those? What do I do with those things? My ability to serve others and to love others, what, what do those good things do to that? Because the truth for us is that you and I need God more than just on Sunday. I mean, coming to church on Sunday is great, and fellowshiping with other believers is great, and singing praises are great, and being a part of all of this is great. This is good, but you need this more than just one day a week, right? We need it more than just that. So what is getting in the way? What is hindering your pursuit of Jesus? Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday. And only you can answer that question. I can't answer that for you. Your neighbor can't answer that for you. Your spouse can't answer that for you. That's a question that you need to answer. Because God has given each of us a race to run. And each of us, for each of us, that is different. It's going to look differently the way that you pursue Jesus than the way that I do. Certainly there are going to be some things that are the same. We gather together, we hear the word preached, we sing. Yes, those things are good. But I can't tell you what things are that are hindering your faith and are hindering your walk with the Lord. That's between you and God. And so we need to ask that question. If you have time to spend with God and to serve Him, what are you doing with that time? Each person answers that. And so don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Don't look to your person beside you and say, oh, well, they're able to do this and they're able to do that and I should be able to do that and if I can't, I'm going to try harder to be able to do that because I want to keep that the way that they can and keep that habit or that pleasure or that good thing, right? If they can do it, I can too. Well, maybe for you, that's not the answer to that question. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe self-control is in an area, in that area you do not possess, and so the question we need to ask of the good things, as he says, strip off. Let us strip off those things, those weights. The question is this. Is this a help or is this a hindrance to you spiritually? Is this thing that you're doing, that you do, that you enjoy to do, that is good in your life, is it helping you or is it hindering you spiritually? And then what does he say? Lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to you. Deny sin is what he's saying. Deny sin. The matter of sin is so much more serious than just those things that are a hindrance to us. Why? Because sin entangles. It clings to us. It trips us up, right? Those hindrances, they weigh us down, they slow us down. But sin is like that person that sticks their foot out and knocks you right down, right? They don't just weigh you down, they knock you over. Think of David. Think of how quickly for him sin dragged him down. When he lusted over Bathsheba and he allowed his, 
He allowed his heart to be fulfilled in lusting after her and taking her as a wife and then killing her husband. Think of the impact of the sin and the sin that it had on his life and his child and Bathsheba's life because of one sin. And the truth about sin is that it clings to us. It clings so closely, referring to a specific sin. And again, as we go back to what we just read, every single person in this room has a different besetting sin. For every single one of us, that sin that we need to deny is different. Some of you struggle with jealousy or dishonesty, but you would never struggle with anger and I'd never see you in a bout of rage, but then for others I might. For all of us, it's different. Some te- sins tempt others, and some don't, and vice versa. But the reality of sin is that it won't stop assaulting. We know that. Sin is never profitable. We read that in the Scriptures, and it will never stop until we are with the Lord in heaven. And so the reality, as we've read through Hebrews, is if you do not throw that sin off, you will not endure to the end. We've talked about enduring faith. Psalm 32, David says this, verse 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See that picture for David of unconfessed sin? of the weight of sin on his life when he didn't get rid of it? What sin is it that so easily entangles you and me? Is it covetousness? Is it envy? Is it criticism? Maybe it's laziness or hatred or anger or unthankfulness or for some of us, pride. Whatever sin it is, Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every sin that entangles us, every sin that clings to us. Strip it off, leave it behind, deny it. So again, the question for us, is there any sin that you are not repenting of? That's the obvious question in this. Is there a sin in my life where, hey, I haven't repented of this and I need to? We start there. But then some of you in this room would say, well, yes, there are, and yes, I've repented of those, and yes, I am continually repenting of those things, and that is great. But maybe you would say, I've repented of all my known sin, and I continually repent of all my known sin. Then ask God to reveal areas of your life where there is sin, because it is there. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing it, because of the deceitfulness of it. God, show me my sin. Show me where I'm not living obediently to your word. Help me to repent of that. Because if you hold on to sin, you're not going to finish the race. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, one of the warning passages that we've studied, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort each other, one another, every day. We need each other every day. All it takes is one sin to sabotage the soul of man. And once you've stripped away those weights, and once you've stripped away that sin, what does he say in the last part of verse 1? Run the race. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Going back to that reality that we are in a race. To run with endurance is to run when everything else around you is urging you to stop, to stop running. Now, I'm not a professional biker at all by any means, but I know that biking can be hard, and especially in this PEI wind, like I'm telling you, man, it's crazy. You go for a bike ride and you think it's just going to be a nice casual bike ride, and then you realize you get like a headwind and it's just like, forget it, I wish I stayed home, right? I wish I just did not go out. Walking would be easier. It can be hard, right? And when I find in, a, in running a race or in biking, the, one, the only thing going through my head is, okay, just put in the lowest gear and just move your legs. Just make sure your legs are moving because then you're getting somewhere, right? You're at least not, you know, stopped. You're not waiting for that wind to die down, which it never will, right? So you downshift, you pedal slow, and you just go, right? It doesn't have to be fast. And there are times in our lives where our race is like that, right? You downshift into like, first gear, the easiest gear, and you're just like, you can feel like you can barely make it, right? And then there's other times where you hit a hill and everything is going great and you're in high gear and, you know, the bike's barely keeping up with you as you go, right? And you guys know, you know that feeling. You know those times as you've run the race of faith where those, those feelings come. But you also know the times, yeah, where it's just everything around me seems like this, I need to give up, this, I need to stop. And you're going to have those days. And what do the people before us tell us? Don't give up. What does he say? Run with endurance. Obstacles, they'll cause weariness. You'll be exhausted. But God wants you to persevere. That's what he's called you to do, to persevere. Think of Terry Fox who ran across the country. Didn't make it all the way, but he ran. And he ran through rain and he ran through snow and he ran through wind and humidity and hot. He ran when nobody showed up and he ran when there was a crowd around him to cheer him on, right? He endured. He ran. He ran when everything else was saying quit. For us, it's a struggle, right? Because we try as hard as we can to know what lies ahead. We want to know. We want to know what's going to be there, right? We want to control the future as best as we can. And really, the reality is that God's calling us to persevere in faith right now, wherever He's put you. Persevere in faith. The Christian race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. But the race that we're in, do we desire to finish? Because that sometimes seems to be the problem for us. We're content to, to be saved and to wait for heaven. And just to hang on as long as we can. Do you desire to finish? Do you desire to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Or like Paul said, I've run the race, I've finished it. It's not a race against anybody else. You don't look behind you to see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and you say, oh yeah, I'm ahead of them, right? Like in a, in a biking competition, that's great. Or in a race you're running, that's great. You want to be ahead of the person behind you. In the Christian race... That's not the case. We're not looking back to others and saying, oh, at least I'm ahead of this person. And the Old Testament saints, they weren't honored for their passive endurance. It was active. When things were impossible, like literally impossible, they continued to trust and have faith in God. And this leads us then to the secret of the Christian life, which we find in verse 2. The all-purpose advice. You guys know that duct tape is good for pretty much everything, right? That's been established. People, some of you, 
I don't know if anyone's got fenders held together or, or in their, on their cars, but I've seen, we've seen, you've seen, lots of different purposes for duct tape. And usually, when something has that many purposes, it's not actually that good. Or, I mean, or it is just really that good, I suppose. But you would think that it kind of, you know, isn't actually that good because it can be used for so many things, right? Like the, kind of like the guy that has all the trades. He's not really master of everything, but he can do, or sorry, he's not a master of one thing, but he can do everything. That's kind of what it seems like. But with this advice, it's not the case. There's no circumstance, there's no difficulty, there's no hardship, there's no temptation that's present in your life right now which is, to which this advice in verse 2 is not helpful. This advice is helpful for everything and for everyone here. And here's what it is. Look to Jesus, is what he says in verse 2. Look to Jesus. You and I aren't here because of Abel, Moses, David, all those that have gone before us. We're here because of Jesus. We all have a race to run, each one of us. For each one, it's different. Don't look to others, look to Jesus. The Greek would suggest that we need to deliberately lift our eyes up from the things that are distracting us and focus our con- and concentrate on Jesus and continue to do so. And we're going to read in these verses why we look to Jesus. This is fundamental to the life of faith and to enduring, is to look to Jesus. More than what we read in verse 1 and 2, or verse 1, sorry, of those that have gone before us in all of Hebrews 11. Look to Jesus. We just taught Grayson how to ride a bicycle this year, this spring, and it's fun to watch, not when they fall and scrape their knees and stuff. I don't have like this sick pleasure in watching that. But it's fun to watch how when, they, when they're biking and you take those training wheels off and for Grayson it... He's like, you know, squirrel and goes this way, that kind of thing, right? You know what I mean? And so when he's like pedaling and biking, if he sees anything on the side of the road, he's already so distracted so easily. If he sees anything on the side of the road, he doesn't always like go in the direction of that thing. If he's looking at it, he might go in the opposite direction or whatever, but he starts going any direction if he's not looking in front of him. And, uh, and so we have to always be telling him, keep your eyes in front of you. Keep your, and I'm sure you guys had to do the same thing. I'm hoping that Grayson's not like the only one that does that, you know. But, but uh, I, I'm assuming. I just don't remember when I learned how to ride bikes. So we've had to tell him that, and, and uh, he's gotten better, certainly. But when he focuses on where he's going and he's looking in front of him, he's able to keep it straight, right? Pretty you know, that's pretty straightforward. And uh, the same thing when I went to skid school, learning how to drive, when they're teaching how to get out of a skid, they say, look ahead to where you want to go. Don't look right in front of you or else you're just going to put yourself in the ditch. Go look ahead to where you want to go. And there's so many illustrations that are for this. So look to Jesus, who's run the race of faith before us and turn to him for inspiration, seeing what he's done. And the reality for us is here that we have a more powerful incentive in our faith because of Jesus, right? It would be great if we were looking to Hebrews 11 and those that have walked before us, but we're looking to Jesus who has walked that walk perfectly, which we're going to look at in a moment. Look at what he did. And here's what he did. First thing, he's the founder of our faith. Perhaps a better translation, and some of yours may say forerunner or pioneer. He's a pioneer of our faith. You've heard before. The, rea- the, the picture being that Jesus went ahead and blazed a trail that nobody else could do. He did something that nobody else could do. He broke down barriers that nobody else could break down. 
in living obediently to God, right? As a, as a fully man. He's the forerunner of our faith. He's the founder of it. He's the great example. He's the preeminent one as an example to us. He was tempted in all things and yet was without sin, Hebrews 4 says. Jesus didn't bypass God's will. He waited and he trusted. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know that picture very well. He says to God, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But not my will, but yours be done. God's will was to have Jesus die on the cross for your sin and mine. That was God's will. It was to have Jesus do that, to live obediently, to live the life that we couldn't live, and to die on the cross for our sin. Whatever the prospect of suffering that has come to, to Jesus, he trusted his Father. And one of the quotes here from one of the commentaries I read, I really uh, appreciate and want to share it with you. If the heroes of the Old Testament are lights testifying to faith in God, Jesus on the cross is a blazing sun bringing faith to its most dazzling expression. Because if Christ's perfect faith did not lead him to the cross, then you and I have placed our faith in vain. There would be no sacrifice for sin. And so Christ initiates all faith. He bestows all faith. He's the founder of our faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not the result of works that what? No man may boast. Faith comes from God. And apart from Jesus, there's no Savior, there's no salvation. So he's the founder of our faith. So we look to him. And then he's also the perfecter of our faith. He perfectly lived by faith in God. Jesus' faith carried through to completion. And it was his faith in God that allowed him to endure mocking, persecution, crucifixion, beatings, torture, hatred. It was his faith in God that allowed him, that made him able to endure, to suffer on the cross. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christ has done everything needed to secure your salvation, to bring you to God. He's done it all. So all it is needed for us is faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Usually, how it works is one person originates something, comes up with an idea, and people that come after that person then perfect that idea and refine that idea, right? That's typically how that works. Typically, it's not the person that creates it who also perfects it and refines it. For Jesus, that was different. The world has never seen a walk of faith like Jesus. And you think of the great people like Moses and Noah and others. Nobody has walked the walk of faith like Jesus has. He's perfected our faith. Now we see his joyful endurance, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Some would argue that this 
Word means for is instead of. So Jesus saw the joy that he could have had. Right, Philippians 2, when it talks about Jesus being up and how he, in humility, he left the throne in heaven and came down. Right, he saw the joy that he could have had and he chose instead to be crucified and to go through what he went through. Some see it that way. But I think as we read it, in pursuit of the joy before him, or in order to obtain the joy, it's not that he rejected the joy and went with the other option. It's that the reason that he did it was because of the joy that was going to come for the walk that he went through. He endured the cross because of the joy that was there on the other side of that. And I think that lines up more with what Hebrews teaches as we've read Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What carried them through? How did they joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Because their possession was an abiding possession. was a better possession. And Jesus saw that. And he went and took all the ugliness of the cross on our behalf. He knew that he was glorifying God. He knew all the pain was worth it. And I think we sometimes forget this, and it's tricky for us, and I was just reflecting on this as we were prepping this for this morning. We forget that Jesus, even though he was divine and 100% fully God, 100% man, we somehow forget how much physical and spiritual suffering he really went through and we kind of give him a bit of a pass because he was God but he was fully man and endured the suffering of the cross he endured the cross he saw your bibles read despising the cross or sorry despising the shame he saw how shameful it was to go to the cross and to be crucified where only murderers and criminals go and he said I don't care about that my reputation doesn't matter for that. He despised the shame of the cross and he took it on. And so when you think your race is hard, look to Jesus. Look to Christ, who for the joy set before him, that joy was to run the race in order to save people and to bring them to God. And there's a paradox there. Running the race can be hard, but it doesn't mean you can't have joy. Life can be hard, but it doesn't mean you can't have joy. And for Jesus, pain is what brought joy, that reward at the end. How many of us are tempted to take the easy way out, to shrink back from the difficult things? Christ suffered as an example for us to follow. And then finally, we see the joyous exaltation of Christ in the end of verse 2. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another reference back to Psalm 110, which has been throughout this book the entire time. Christ's exaltation to the Father, Him going back to be with God, was the joy that was set before Him. That was why He endured. There was great joy in Christ being brought to the Father because of all the implications that it means. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it is fitting that He... For, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why was it so good for Jesus to do that? And why did he look so forward to being with his father in heaven? Because it was going to bring sons to glory. It was going to save a people. 
We are, we are part of the joy that was set before Christ and what he was going to accomplish. That makes us part of it. And he walked, so Jesus walked the hard path of faith completely for our salvation, for our adoption as heirs with Christ in the things that God had for us. And that picture is assuring and it's a guarantee as we see that. As he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, it's, it's been done. It is finished. It's guaranteed. It's secure. So Jesus is both our example in faith and he's the object of our faith. He's the greatest example. He's greater than Hebrews 11 and all of those that have walked before. He's the one to look to. Not Moses and Abraham, although certainly they give us an example in verse 1 of how to run the race. They show us. But Jesus is the perfect example. And what caused him to endure? For the joy set before him. John 17 says this, I glorified you on earth. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus obtained his reward by glorifying God in faith. That's how he got his reward, by glorifying God. What is it at the end of the race that's causing you to endure right now? What is our reward? Jesus. He stands at the finish line. If we're believers in Christ, if we place our faith in Him, heaven is not our reward. Certainly that's coming, but heaven's already guaranteed for us, right? That's not our reward. Our reward is what Jesus said in His prayer. To get to the end of our lives, to hear God say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, to say with Paul, I've run the race, I've finished well. I've glorified God in this walk of faith, in this run of this race of faith, I've glorified God. And Jesus says, therefore glorify me with you as it was before the world existed. We run the race of faith so that the character of God, the attitudes of Christ, shine through us. We're running to glorify God. And that's the goal, and that's the reward at the end. The race is not over. A great reward is coming. We will be glorified in heaven with God at the end of that race if we endure to the end. God, help us fix our eyes on Jesus, as he says in verse 2. Look to Jesus as the preeminent example of faith. Why? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we're being transformed into the same image of him from one degree of glory to the other. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ this morning. We thank you for the example that he is to us, the example of faith that he is to us, God. We recognize that we have things in our lives that make running the race of faith difficult and hard. God, and you promise us one thing, that the world is going to hate us if we love you and that we will have hardships, we will have persecutions, we will have difficulties, God. And we thank you so much that Jesus ran that race 
thousands of years ago and showed us what it was like to obey God and to run in faith and to wholly trust you, God. And we thank you that he did that for us so that we can imperfectly run the race of faith and we can glorify you as we do it in the strength of the Spirit and by our power, God. We rely on you to do that, God, and we thank you for the help to do that. God, help us this morning as we've read and looked to Hebrews 12. Help us to see, God, what things in our lives weigh us down. Maybe it's something that is good and it just gets in the way of us pursuing you and and glorifying you and living for you and running the race to you. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's something that we haven't repented of. God, we pray for your help and for your strength to see, God, how you are speaking through us and through your word, to us through your word this morning, God. And we ask that you would give us the strength to walk and run the race in glory to you, God, for all that you've done for us. God, we thank you so much for your great love and grace for us. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.